good to have fun. And I'm glad to be able to um, speak to you again today as we wrap up this three-part short series that we've done starting in June and now finishing the last two weeks with the life of Samson. And today we're going to look at something. I told you last week that I was more excited about this week's than, than last week because it's, it's something that it's been, a, it's been a big part of my life, which is just, just the writing part of it. So we're writing our own stories is what I, what I want to title this today. We've learned six lessons from Samson's life. And just to summarize, here they are with the six points. We're all born for purpose. We decide to live for God's purposes or for our own. God gives us sufficient time to surrender to his plans. Actions reveal loyalties. These are three that we did last week. We live with the consequences of our actions. Consequence can be good or, with, or it can be bad. And six, God's plans don't fail even when we do. Samson didn't write his own story. Somebody probably, uh, Samuel did, but somebody wrote it. He didn't get to write it. And I wonder if Samson had been around to read what was written about him after the fact, how he would have reacted. Would he have, you know, stormed out in a rage and gone and, you know, killed some more people just because he didn't like what was said about him? But it's too bad. He lived the life and that was the result and the facts were the facts. Most people don't, here's a proper use of literally, most people don't literally write out their stories every single day. Some of us weirdos like me write down what we do every single day. And I told you before, but I started doing that when I was 15 years old. We had moved to a weird part of the country for little southern redneck, if you will, kids from northeast Georgia. We moved to a place with about a million people around it. It was coastal Norfolk area of, of eastern Virginia. And we were just completely out of place. We were up there less than a year before we moved back. And I was miserable. So I'd read about all these people, Christians and just whomever, who had written about their life and called it a diary or whatever. And I said, I, I think I can do that. I knew I liked to write stuff, so I just started doing it. And my wife likes to pick at me and say, I've kept a diary since all then. You can call it whatever you want. I say journal because it sounds less girly than saying diary. <clears throat> All I know is that the written form of that stopped about 2005. At that point, I started typing it because I'd learned to type so much faster than write. But it's not girly when you just go back and pick up those notebooks that all that stuff took for years. That, that stuff got heavy, and that was another reason that I decided to stop. Also, because if you don't have where I keep it, you can't read it. Those notebooks, my kids can go in there if they know where the stuff is, and they can get it and say, you did what? Because, you know, I, I, just, I just wrote it. It's my perspective. It's my point of view. I wrote the good. I wrote the bad. I wrote how I felt about it. And some days are this long, but some days are this long. So it just is what it is. Samson didn't get that option. I have joked with Kelly. She is, she's a Nicholas Sparks fan. Do we have any Nicholas Sparks fans in here? Any of you men raising, John raised his hand. Look, I like seeing the movies, but I'm not going to read the book. Kelly could go to the beach next week, and she could read a Nicholas Sparks book in about an hour. She just, she just, I'm like, it's the same as the last story, wasn't it? 
they just changed Rodanthe to somewhere else on the coast or whatever and changed the names, and it was pretty much the same story. And I started picking at her, and I said, I could write a book that good just using our story. And she said, no, you couldn't, because you don't know how to write for women. And she taught me how to write for women. So before we go any farther, I'm just going to share a little bit of that. I thought I could write our story and that it would be more interesting than a Nicholas Sparks book, but she let me know that you don't just drive to the restaurant and go inside and eat. You drive those three miles and you have to describe as you're writing for women how you felt on that wonderful three-mile drive. And when you get there, you, you have to describe what the weather was like as you're stepping out of the car specifically so you can tell what kind of wind blew through your hair while you're walking inside. But before you get inside, you have to describe the flowers that are in the pot beside each of the entrances and what the door is made out of, what kind of wood as you enter it. The first three smells that hit you, you have to, am I, am, I, am I doing right, Kelly? First three smells, you have to describe them and the music that was playing. And then you have to describe what the food tasted like that you ate and the regret that you have over the two or three things that you did not order. I'm like, Kelly, I, you know, I could, I could write a series after one day, you know, a six book series if I was to do all of that stuff. So I have interest in this topic of writing and just so you know that my diary is not written like that it's more so here's what I did and here's how I felt about it most people again don't literally write out their own stories but we don't have to because our fingers aren't the only things that write our day-to-day -day living is writing out those stories for us our daily lives are doing those stories. We can't hide anything from God, but the people around us, they don't have to read some story that we would write. The people around us know what our stories really are. And we don't get to alter the facts or turn our story into some heroic, fictional account just because we don't like what the true story is. Fiction is imaginary, while nonfiction is fact. Fiction writers can write whatever they want, and their characters can do whatever they want them to do. But nonfiction is history. Even if you think your history is not very important, your life is a nonfictional story, and it is history. And there are ways to verify whether what you're saying is true or if it's a fictional account that you just made up to make yourself sound better than the life that you really lived. Just so you know, this is one way that, uh, to defend the early writing of the Gospels in those New Testament letters. Some people like to say that they were wit written way later. Well, we, we have enough evidence, and if you're interested in any of this kind of reading, just talk to me and I'll put you on to two or three sources. But it's, it's pretty clear that those four Gospel accounts were written early. And because of that, it is really clear that they were written accurately and truthfully. Because if you write something and then for three or four or five decades there are just thousands of people around who lived through and saw what you're describing and you didn't write it accurately, what's going to happen? People are going to tell on you. They're going to say, that's not the way that happened. We were there for that event. So you can verify the writing of the Gospels and those things that happened, the natural and the supernatural, just by knowing that there were plenty of people alive who could back up what those writers wrote. If you write a history of the United States from 2000 to 2009, 
Now, that doesn't seem like long ago, but we're already 20 years from the start of that period. If you decide you're going to write a U.S. history just for that decade, it better involve September 11th, the ensuing war on whatever it actually, you know, got said, whatever they determined it was going to be. I'm sitting here thinking of George Bush's words and then how they're used against him, but you need to write about September 11th, you need to write about that war, you need to write about a drought, you need to write about Hurricane Katrina, you need to write about Obama becoming president, the financial crisis, and there's a few things that you better write about if you're going to, if you're going to write a history of that decade or otherwise, people that live through that or can go back and look at histories or know somebody that lived through it, they say that, that's missing a bunch of stuff, that's not how it happened. So people can verify what we write just by saying, I lived through that. What we do every single day is a page in our story. And you know, you can't write out a bad page and say, I don't like how that went, so I'm just tearing this one out, and we'll forget that one. You might forget it, but you interacted with some people that day, they're not ripping it out. They know. The facts about Samson show that he wasn't this big, strong, conquering Israelite hero. His story is a tragedy, and I've mentioned before that I personally consider him the Bible's biggest failure. With the lessons that we've learned from Samson in mind, with those six things that we mentioned at the very start, let's answer these three questions about the stories we're writing. Look at me. This is, this is a wasted time if you, don't, if you don't acknowledge what I'm asking you to do. These three questions, here's what I want us to do. I want you to be specific about the story you're writing. Not thinking about what Samson wrote. I want you to apply these three questions to yourself in the story that you're writing. Number one, are you writing a novel or a short story? Novel or short story? Samson's story happened over a 20-year span. 20 years. It took four chapters to cover his story. That is sad. It's pathetic, really. Not every God-honoring person in the Bible got a long story, but how many of them were blessed like Samson was blessed? Just to compare it, Joseph's story got 13 chapters in Genesis. Moses' story got four books. David's story got two and a half books. I could have gone on, but those three guys, unlike those three guys, Samson didn't have a heart for God, so there's not much to write. Four chapters, because he didn't have a heart for God. As Christians, anything we do that's not for God's glory is not worth writing about. I'm going to be personal with you for a second, not about me, but about people that I have experienced life and ministry with over the last 20-something years. I'm old enough that now I have former youth who are nearing 40. I also have former youth parents, just do the math, not, not just a single time I have had parents come to me later and say things like this. So parents, grandparents, anybody has an influence on a child right now, listen. And where you have failed, because there's a lot of failure in any room this size. Every one of us fail at this. But where there's failure, do what you can do from this point on about it. Those adult parents, sometimes grandparent age, come to me and they say, 
Kevin, I don't, I don't know what to do about my college age or young adult children. They won't come to church. They're not raising my grandchildren in church. The only time my grandchildren go to church are when we go pick them up and take them. And I, I don't know what to do. Now, these are just thoughts. These aren't things that I say to them. But, but here's, here's my reaction. For 10 years, for 10 years, I pled with you, maybe sometimes personally, but also from teaching, I pled with you to center your children's lives around the schedule of their church, to let them be involved in the ministries of our church, of our youth ministry, to let them engage, to let them learn. But yet you push them to love and to serve any other thing than the Lord Jesus Christ when they were 8 and 14 and 16. What, what do you think they're going to be serving now? That's what the comes from. It's just exasperating to say, you're on the wrong side of it now. You were warned in the middle of it. Not just by me, but you were warned in the middle of it. You pushed them to love and to serve and to honor something other than Jesus Christ. So that's what they're doing now. It could have been beauty. But look, there's all kinds of things that you can put your child in and it dictate and become an idol for them and for you as well. It can be beauty pageants. I have two girls and just have had a boy. It can be beauty pageants. It can be dance. Of course, with me and my favorite temptation is sports and putting too much time and effort and passion into that. We talked about that in Sunday school today. But it could be any number of things that you let your children dictate what the family's life is going to be about. And let me say again, as Christians, anything we do that's not for God's glory isn't worth writing about. Samson was given so much, but he only got four chapters. His greatest moment is killing 3,000 Philistines at the end of his life after he acknowledged God as the source of his strength. He's known for ending. He's, he's known for dying with the Philistines. No matter how old you are, you've already had plenty of time to write a story that's worth more than four chapters of your life with Jesus Christ. Regardless of your age, everybody in here should get more than four chapters. Any of us should be able to write four chapters after being involved in just one year of ministry here at our church. If you're involved in ministry here at our church, you should, you should have more than four chapters. Think about the things that our church has allowed you to, ways to serve, ways to, to be involved, ways to give, ways to be a part. Just in the last calendar year, dealing with COVID, and we all should be able to write a story that's longer than four chapters. Now put a few of those years together. See what I'm saying? Are you writing a novel or are you writing a short story? Referring back to my youth ministry years again, during my full-time youth ministry time, my students had the chance to be gone somewhere around a month with our ministry every year. Retreats, winter, summer, fall, spring, mission trips, Bible schools here at our church and somewhere else helping them. About a month, those kids have the chance to be gone. You put together five or six or seven years of youth ministry there, you see the chance that they had to write a story or to have their story with God written? Whether you live to be 20 or 100, Christians should have a novel's worth of pages with some title like The Amazing Adventures of So-and-So and Jesus. Are you writing a novel or are you content just for a little four-chapter 
short story. The second question, and again, we're just looking at his life and asking a few questions. Second question, are you a good guy or a bad guy? Bad guys don't care about Jesus. Bad guys don't care about Jesus. Good guys do. There really aren't any good guys in Samson's story. His parents obeyed God at the start, but when Samson rebelled, they went and got him the pagan Philistine girl anyway to marry. Samson was a bad guy, not a hero, but God chose to use him anyway. Delilah was a bad guy. Philistines were bad guys. All the Philistines that Samson killed were bad guys. Many old movies, what signified the bad guy? What'd they wear? They wore black. Whether it was a black hat, old black and white movies, it was easy to distinguish who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. But they wore them so that you could find out, just see who is the hero and who is the villain. But that's not how it is in our stories. We can try to disguise ourselves. We can try to make ourselves look and sound like anything we want us to be. We can act one way but really be another. But eventually our actions tell our real stories. And they tell if we're really for God or against Him. Our actions reveal our loyalties from last week. Every time we sin, we choose our way over God's way. We're supposed to be having, as we grow closer to Jesus, we're supposed to be having fewer bad guy days and more good guy days. Among the memorable things about spiritual growth that Paul said, here is one of them, from Colossians 1, verses 9 through 10. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. So as we grow closer to Jesus, no matter what we've done in the past, no matter what we've done in the past, love for Jesus and repentance when we sin, as we talked about last week, will become the dominant themes of our lives. No matter what you've done in the past, you can change what the dominant themes of your life are with God's help and your obedience and surrender to following what he wants you to do. We still have our bad guy days, but not nearly as many as we used to. Third question to ask. How will you be remembered? How will you be remembered? We don't have to tell anyone who we live for. We don't have to tell anyone what we're about. Our lives are like letters. How long does it take to read a letter? It's just really quick. We see what people are about very quickly. Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 3, 2, your lives are a letter written in our hearts and everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Samson isn't primarily known for his strength. He's primarily known for how he wasted that strength. It's terribly sad when the main lesson we learn from a person's life is what not to do. I've got three brothers. One is older by four years. His life is a story of what not to do. He's going through some 
some, some trauma, the death of a loved one. Right now, this weekend, he's 51 years old. He'll be 52 in November. And he is still a picture of what not to do. He called me the other day broken, crying. I didn't know it was him. He has several numbers. So I just let it go to voicemail. I have a voicemail of him crying, asking me to pray to my God that somebody that he loves will not die. Said she's in ICU right now. Pray to your God. I need your goodness. I need your. I'm like, there's nothing good about me. It's the God that I serve that is good. I need you to pray to your God. I need your help. I need his help. I'm like, Keith, it's sad that you can't say, I need my God's help. Why is it got to, I, I need you to cry out to your God to come in to help and to rescue me in, in, in this situation that I'm in. He still refuses. And his life is a picture of what not to do. I have a friend here today. Barry, thanks for coming. Good to have you. He has known at least a little bit about that brother I'm describing for over 30 years. And, and, and my brother is still living the same self-centered type of life. There's no difference from what he looked like in 1991 and now 30 years later. Lynn Bias was a college basketball star at Maryland from 1982 to 1986. Some of your eyes just, just lit up when I said Lynn Bias. You can see the picture on the screen. I could sit here and stray from my notes and talk about him for too long. Probably will do that just a little bit. But in the mid-80s, he, he, was, he was one of the major stars of college basketball. And you, you know, if I had my keys in my pocket, you would know that I have Georgia stuff just everywhere. And I'm a University of Georgia fan. I grew up down there, and, and that's my allegiance. Georgia's just traditionally awful at basketball. And, and I love basketball, so I was going to watch somebody. Growing up here, the ACC is what was on, not the SEC, so... 1982 is when I started watching, and North Carolina won the national championship. And they had that freshman named Michael Jordan. I said, I guess I'll like them. And I've been a Tar Heel fan ever since, just in basketball. So, Lynn Bias was six months, one grade behind Michael Jordan. He was two inches taller. He was 20 pounds heavier. He had the same 40-plus inch vertical leap. And he was going to be an NBA superstar. He played North Carolina with Jordan on the team four times while in college. Two when he was a freshman, two when he was a sophomore. You can go on YouTube right now and see some of those old grainy videos. And you can see some of the stuff that he did. He would, he would, he would jump shoot. And he's 6'8 already. And he's that 40-inch vert. No, nobody could block his shot. He'd go straight up. Nobody blocked his shot. And he was really good. I remember a game in... 1986, North Carolina was number one in the nation. It was their first season playing in the Dean Dome. It was on TV. Not every game was on TV then. And Lynn Bias single-handedly beat them just with miraculous play after miraculous play. At some point in that game, they said he had made 34 straight free throws. He, he was good. He was drafted number two, I think on June 17, 1986, by the world champion, just had won the world championship, Boston Celtics. Larry Bird was ecstatic. He was so excited to get to bring this guy onto their aging team and see what would happen over the next five or six years. The next night, 
Larry Bird, I mean, Lynn Bias went back to his dorm at Maryland. And sometime in the next few hours, he died of a cocaine overdose, celebrating. Whether or not it was his first time using cocaine has never really been made for certain. He became a story of what not to do. And as much as I was a North Carolina Tar Heel fan, I loved watching this guy play because I saw his brilliance. There's stories written about what would have happened in the NBA in the next decade or so with Michael Jordan having a comparable rival, somebody that had already shown in college to be a comparable rival, comparable skills. And we'll never know because Lynn Bias made the decision and we learned from it what not to do. His death kicked off what became known as the war on drugs. That is what started it. Sports Illustrated had that article with that cover the next week. And if you can't read that, it says, death of a dream. I used to take every Sports Illustrated cover that came to me for years and years as a child, and I would cut off the cover and put it on my wall, and put it on my wall, and put it on my wall. And that one hung on my wall until probably I was 18 or 20 years old. How do you want to be remembered? For what not to do? How will you be remembered? People come and people go in our lives. Everyone we've known for a while remembers us for something. You might go to that place to eat lunch just for six months or a year. There might be a server that's in there just for two or three of those months. They might not even know your name, but they know you for something. You have an impact. If God lives in you, he is living through you, and you are supposed to make an impact for him. But what kind of impact are we making? Ultimately, it's up to you. Ultimately, it's up to us. The pen is in your hand. When I say you, I'm including myself as well. You're writing your own story. You're writing an autobiography. Some stories are unforgettable. Unforgettable. Others aren't worth remembering. Some stories are unforgettable, and others aren't worth remembering. Don't live an insignificant, short, four-chapter story. If you know Jesus Christ, there should be piles, heaps of pages in your story. And also, don't live a tragedy. With whatever time you have left, make it a point to live a great adventure with Jesus Christ. And may people love to hear your story and draw strength and encouragement from it for years to come. Would you bow your heads with me?